Hello, this is the Game Podcast from The Times and I'm Natalie Sawyer. Joining Gregor Robertson and I today, it is Jonathan Northcroft. Jonathan, how are you doing? Hi Nat, I'm, I'm, I'm good thanks. I'm um, basking in the glow of uh, some football last night. Um, it already feels a little bit different from a, a writer's point of view and just um, from a human point of view, it was just really nice watching watching games yesterday and um, all the stuff we love, the controversy, the the the, the skills, and all the rest of it. Uh, so mm. things, um, yeah, things are good. Things are good, and we'll talk about those two games in just a moment. But I believe you're going to be going to your first live game since obviously this restart this weekend. I am, yeah. I'm, I'm at Brighton v Arsenal um, this weekend. I'm really looking forward to it. It'll it'll be different from a. Uh, a kind of logistics point of view. I'm really looking forward to actually driving to a stadium without any traffic and parking right outside. <laughs> that'll be that'll be interesting. And I'm kind of I think it's a challenge for uh, match reporters. Actually, um, I'm not quite sure how we go with it. Uh, it'll it'll be a bit of a um, test, sort of finding out. I, I, I thought the guys in all the papers did well. Um, this morning but um you know a lot of them were writing about the atmosphere and, and and the setting and i guess come saturday everyone will know that these are in empty stadiums and we'll have to not write about that so i'm kind of quite enjoying thinking through those problems and, and how we're going to put it all in print when we um in sunday's paper mm. and just just quickly before i say hello to gregor of course has there been any sort of guidance on protocol do you have to arrive earlier anything like that that's different Yes, um, I mean it's being recommended that we try and get uh, into the grounds about an hour before. Although they're not opening, um, they're, they're they're opening ninety minutes before, um, so you can't arrive too early. But uh, I think the idea is to to try and not come in too late. I've just filled in my uh, my forms, um, which is a kind of health questionnaire uh, that I have to bring to Brighton, and then we'll be tested uh, for temperature at the at the gates. Um, and the other thing. I've been told us to make sure all your stuff's fully charged because there might not be powerpoints i think you could see the journalists sitting in the stands and not in a press box from the mm. tv pictures last night and um so there's all those little things that that uh you got to sort of bear in mind oh goodness it's all very different isn't it uh, gregor how are you i'm very well thanks that yes um yeah and the same i was kind of delighted to be opening a newspaper this morning and listen to the radio the airwaves and hearing some talk about actual football and, and looking forward to speaking about it as well. It wasn't quiet, was it? <laughs> <laughs> no, it certainly wasn't. What have you been up to today? I think you've been at a club, haven't you? Yes, I, I visited uh, Loftus Road, QPR Stadium today and interviewed uh, Lee Hoos, the, the chief executive there, just to kind of see how a championship club is also, pre- obviously the championship starts this weekend as well, and just to see how they've prepared for... Um, for the restart and and all the kind of you have you have to remember that some championship stadiums aren't quite the same as the Premier League stadiums in that uh, QPR is a an old traditional ground sort of hemmed in and uh, they've had to build uh, new new dressing rooms a kind of portal cabin they've had to use a lounge for uh, the away 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 uh, team to change in uh, there's a kind of one way system because the the corridors are so narrow so it's, uh, we're just kind of having mm. a look at seeing all the logistical things there and also how how the championship is going to be impacted financially because it's obviously a different world outside the Premier League. Yeah, sounds all very fascinating. Are you going to be at QPR this Saturday then? 
No, I'm going to be at no. Craven Cottage. Uh, oh, what's your lot? <laughs> oh my gosh, the fear that just runs through me as soon as you mention that. <laughs> anyway, we're not here to talk about that game. Coming up, David Louise goes under the spotlight, but there's only one place to start. After three months without Premier League football, we have our first controversy to get stuck into. So, Voiceover describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. Voiceover on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It didn't take long. 42 minutes to be precise for the first big talking point of the restarted Premier League and it involved technology. At Villa Park, Sheffield United win a free kick which is swung in by Ollie Norwood towards goal and gathered by a backpedalling Orion Nyland. Uh, Nyland falls backwards against the post and appears to carry the ball into the goal but referee Michael Oliver signals no goal as he hasn't received a signal from his watch triggered by Hawkeye's goal line technology. TV pictures showed the ball clearly went over the line but there was no overrule from VAR and Michael Oliver did not use the pitch side monitor for another look. Hawkeye have since issued a statement Statement. The seven cameras located in the stands around the goal were significantly occluded by the goalkeeper, defender and goalpost. This level of occlusion has never been seen before in over 9,000 matches that the Hawkeye goal line technology system has been in operation. The system was tested and proved functional prior to the start of the match in accordance with the IFAB laws of the game and confirmed as working by the match officials. The system has remained functional throughout. Hawkeye unreservedly apologises to the Premier League, Sheffield United and everyone affected by this incident. So as we've said, didn't take long for there to be some controversy in our first game back. Gregor, we didn't want to be talking about technology so soon into the restart and this time it's not VAR primarily at fault, but who is to blame on this one? I mean, it's it's very hard to say. I think I think it'd be hard to blame any human being. I think the the VAR. I mean, the, the only person you could possibly say was at fault in any way that a, a human being was the, the video system referee because you'd think it was incumbent upon them to check any goal. But as as, as we've heard, you know, I've heard spoken about since nine thousand games. Uh, and this has never happened before. And it's, uh, this was always the one thing, goal line technology, that was almost taken as gospel and that was, you know, infallible. Uh, and obviously, we now know it's not. So it's going to be interesting to see how that changes sort of perceptions of these rulings and and whether, you know, I'm sure now VAR is going to even 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 when the Hawkeye is involved. But I don't think you know, I definitely can't blame anyone on the pitch. I mean, I've, I remember having watched goals, well, what I thought were goals in the past. And you know, then you see the you see the the Hawkeye footage, and and the, you know, there's a millimeter or or something. I, you were certain it was a goal at the time. I, I know this was different. He was basically lying in the side netting with the ball in his hands. It was ridiculous. <laughs> but but I still think 
the 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 psychology of it, the fact that this is that this was one thing, one aspect of technology we thought was 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 perfect. Uh, mm -hmm. That would do strange things to the referee and to the linesman, and so I really think beyond looking at the at the video assistant referee and whether they should have double checked it, whether that was in the protocols, um, I don't think you can blame anyone. Okay, so you're saying that you can't blame anyone on the pitch. Um, what about you, Jonathan? Do you think Michael Oliver could have done more? Um, I, I didn't blame Michael Oliver. I, I think if I, if I had a question mark, it would be about the, the VAR referee, I think it was Paul Tierney, because um, it does seem illogical, uh, even if even if Hawkeye did malfunction or, or it was this um, you know sort of one in a nine million chance or, or whatever, that the, that the ball was at that particular point in in the goal mouth and that meant that, that the cameras were occluded which I have a bit of cynicism about I have to say it didn't seem that obscure but let's just take that on trust even if it was a malfunction um, I, I, the, the, the VAR referee can see what everybody else could plainly see watching on TV which was that the ball had crossed the line so why there is no message to Michael Oliver to, to at least go and check it um, I don't know and I uh, I, I thought Mark, Mark Clattenburg made a good comment um, in, in, in a newspaper today where he, he just worries that um, technology has taken away a little bit of the initiative, the idea of taking responsibility uh, from referees. And, and it does seem to me that um, some of them, and I don't think Michael Oliver's one, by the way, but I think some of them do seem to have, have fallen into a, a pattern of relying on the technology um, mm. instead of um, you know putting the putting their hands up and making decisions themselves. I, I sympathise for referees. All the stuff that's been thrown at them with VAR this year, the way that it's changed um, in its emphasis almost on a weekly basis, I think it must be a really difficult time to, to be a referee because it's all in its infancy. But um, that was a really, really clear scenario um, that clearly crossed the line. You could see it in real time. You didn't even need a replay. So why um, the VAR can't put a message through to, to Michael Oliver I, I don't know I, I, mm. I, I don't blame but I have to ask a question about what Paul Tierney was thinking. Well that is it it's interesting that point that you've raised from Mark Clattenburg about the, the reliance on technology and perhaps some referees thinking or oh, we have the fail safe we have the, something to fall back on if we don't make the right decisions in that moment but Gregor if there was ever a moment for VAR to win over the dissenters this was it wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, that that's absolutely... I think Johnny said the nail on the head there. It, it's only Paul Tierney who could have done anything about it. You know, I don't think anyone on the pitch, as I've said, because of... The, it, as Johnny says, it almost takes away the responsibility of making that final decision by having the, the watch on his wrist. Um, and if that's if that's malfunctioned, then I, I'm with Johnny there. I think there's, <laughs> there's going to be question marks about that and I'd be surprised if... I wouldn't be surprised if that kind of rumbles on for a little while. Um, beyond that, then it's it's down it was down to the VAR. But I, as as I said, it's never happened before, so I, I have some some sympathy. But you know, mm. you just wonder how long it was. You know, how, how long how how long after mm. the goal had, had happened that Paul Tierney became aware that it was a goal and a clear goal, and whether you know that would have been a moment where he's just kind of frozen and think and thinking. You know, we don't know how far as whether it was a minute afterwards or two minutes afterwards or he he low that that would have happened that moment would have come and he's not made he's not made contact and not done anything about it so 
uh, yes, it's going to be very interesting to see the fallout from this. You know, she- Sheffield United could be um, excluded yeah. from the Champions League because of this. They're mm-hmm. in such a tight race where it will come down to, to very, very fine margins. And maybe for the rest of us, there's a slightly comical aspect of, you know, football takes all this time to, to get going again. And when it gets going, there's a there's this sort of VAR error. And, and, and that's so typical of, of the season. But for Sheffield United, this is deeply serious. And if, if they end up um, missing out on what would be an unprecedented historic achievement in their club's history, a game changer for their club because of this, it, it's just incredibly, it's incredibly sad. It'd be like Ireland missing out on that World Cup, really. I mean, uh, and, and, and I could see, you could see Chris Welder's frustration and completely understand it last night. It, of course, is not the first time that Villa have been involved in a controversial goal. Who can forget last year's championship clash at Leeds? Villa's Jonathan Codger went down injured and Villa stopped playing as Leeds' Tyler Roberts slowed down as if to kick the ball out, only then to run through and, and set up Matthias Click to score. The Leeds boss, Marcelo Bielsa, then ordered his team to allow Villa to score, which won then the 2019 FIFA Fair Play Award. Now, maybe I'm living in, in dreamland, Gregor, but do you think Villa... <laughs> should have allowed Sheffield United to to score because it was such a blatant goal. Uh, no, we are living <laughs> in dreamland. You know? I, think, I, think, I think the the difference here is that, the, you know, it was the ball was hammered into the, an, an empty net almost. And in, in, the, in the game last night, we all knew at home, the players, most of the players knew on the pitch that there was kind of, you know, they were sort of looking around and looking over their shoulders and there was a few smirks and grins, but it wasn't. It wasn't kind of confirmed, and it wasn't. Yeah, you know, they all knew, but really, we are living in dreamland. If if we expect any of them to to do that, or the manager to take that decision when there's so much at stake at, uh, in these last games, so um, no, that's not going to happen. Jonathan, could the players, could the Sheffield United players, have done more to take control of this situation on the pitch, or do they just have to accept that decision? I, th- I think they have to. I mean, I think you could see Oli Norwood speaking to Michael Oliver and, and imploring him to, to have a look at it. And um, it, it, It's a slightly different situation to the um, Leeds-Villa one last year because of this um, trust I think people have got in the technology. Um, so, it, you know, you, if you sort of think it through every time you doubt the technology, you, you, you then take your matters into your own hand in terms of, of, of you know, the players making decisions. I, I don't think that's going to work. I thought that, that that was entirely admirable and right what Leeds United did, but this is a slightly different situation where the players have just got to trust. Like Michael Oliver trusted, I suppose, that the, 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 the technology was, was working. And, and you know, as I've said, if, if there's one person that could have solved it, it was the VAR referee. I guess it is wishful thinking. And I suppose when you're thinking back to that game at Ellen Road between Leeds and, and Villa, it was different circumstances. Both knew that they were in the playoffs positions. So this is going to be very different for, for Aston Villa, who are fighting for survival. They're not going to give anything. And I guess in some ways we we can obviously say this, that they won't be winning the Fair Play Award, that's for sure. <laughs> um, but there was a particularly powerful moment pre-kickoff at Villa Park as Matt Dickinson, who was inside the stadium for the Times, reports. The whistle went, you know, we were expecting the sort of players to charge at each other and instead for 10 seconds they took the knee and I, I say it was a genuine goosebumps moment, beautifully choreographed and and all the more powerful for being so unexpected. So I, I'd say it was worth 
going for that moment alone. Obviously, on top of that, we got the controversy of the the goal that wasn't. Uh, football was back, something to argue about, uh, as usual. Um, but say, what will live with me is is those 10 seconds at the start of the game, which were, were genuinely moving and, and I think quite a, a really powerful message. So it's a powerful message, Matt Dickinson says, as players took the knee in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. How much of an impact will those pictures have around the world, Gregor, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think the whole, the whole, uh, as, the whole sort of spectacle of support that the Premier, that Premier League players and uh, and staff as well uh, have shown and, and will show in these first twelve games is is historic. Mm-hmm. Um, to replace the names on the back of the shirt is historic. To replace the Premier League badge is historic, and that moment was a kind of, as you say, it was like a, it captured a moment in time and. It's. It, I think it's a huge step forward for the Premier League, and and it shows the kind of influence and and power that that players wield now. And I don't think there was any other. When the players made it clear that they wanted wanted to do something to show their support, there was no other option. The, the, the Premier League had to had to agree, and and I think they deserve credit for that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and Jonathan, as as Matt was telling us, it's sort of a goose pimple moment, wasn't it? And and hopefully we'll send out that message that the Premier League is united in this in this movement. Yeah, I, th- I think so. A, a message with a, a global reach. And yeah, I, I think what's different about this um, this moment in time is that we've had previous anti-racism protests that have, have or. Or, or initiatives that have been based around just symbols, you know, wearing a T-shirt or a UEFA say no to racism video or whatever it is, and, and they've been they've been great. But what's been um, amazing about this has not just been the gestures, and that 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 taking the knee was an incredibly powerful gesture. But to to do it in the middle, you know, in a game to to stop a game and say this is so important, we're actually stopping the game that we play to do this. That was powerful. But it's 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 been the way that footballers have backed that up by words and by discussing um, racism in a way I have to say that's been more profound and intelligent than I think our politicians have done so and uh, you know Gregor did a absolutely superb interview with, with, with Wes Morgan on this, Wes spoke really seriously and powerfully about it um, I think that Pep Guardiola spoke very very well last night and, and mm. um, it's been it's felt like football is, is almost football's had the kind of discussion that I wish the rest of the world was able to have on this and it's not just the gestures it's the it's gestures combined with that that make this so profound Well that first game of the restart ended goalless it was a different story at the Etihad Manchester City were 3-0 victors at home to Arsenal and there is only one place for us to start and that is on David Luiz he came on for the injured Pablo Mari after 24 minutes before making an error just before half time as he miskicked the ball straight into the path of Raheem Sterling for City's opener and then he was sent off just four minutes into the second half after making no attempt to play the ball and bringing down Riyad Mahrez for a penalty Luiz has now conceded penalties away at Liverpool Chelsea and City this season and has one red card for every 13 games he's played for Arsenal and has given away a penalty once every 6.5 games for the Gunners as well. Oh dear, it's one of those clangers for David Luiz again. How do we sum up his performance at the Etihad, Jonathan? Well, sometimes the, the, the Premier League's got this kind of feeling of just being a, 
a, a, a massive soap opera where everyone plays their allotted parts. And David <laughs> Louise came and played David Louise perfectly <laughs> yesterday. In fact, it was one of his virtuoso David Louise performances. But uh, I mean, he's at such a strange point in his career, but it's been such a, a strange career to think this is somebody who was the world's most expensive defender at one point, who's moved for £110 million worth of fees in his, in his career, and to see him at the age of 33, um, having not in any way developed those bits of the game that would actually make him a, a real top-class player, because he obviously he's got, he's got great attributes too, but just that, that absolute lack of learning over the entire, entirety of a career is, 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 is mind-boggling, really, and uh, I think he's you know, setting a record for, for penalties, the joint record now in a Premier League season. Um, you know, the, the, the red cards are, 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 are racking up. And it, it was classic David Luiz in that it was, I think his biggest problem of all has been the inability to concentrate. Uh, it, you know, it's something that young defenders go through and, and get to grips with. And at the age of 33, he still can't concentrate properly throughout a match. So he does, um, you know, he does 10 great things and then, he just loses it for a second, mm. and the first goal was an example of that—just a silly bobble off his shin because he's not—he's not really in the game properly, and then getting in the wrong position and 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 sort of the, the penalty was another example. And he's just—he just keeps doing it, just keeps doing it. I don't know if they've had sports psychologists to work with them. Um, I don't know how he's tried to address it himself, but as I say, mind-boggling that, that over the course of a career he hasn't been able to to fix it in any way. You mentioned his age there, 33, so we may not see much more of him in the Premier League. And Gregor, you actually took to Twitter last night and wrote this. Farewell, David Louise, you absolute maniac of a defender. I'm guessing you think his time is up. Is that in the Premier League overall? And how would you sum up his career in England? It's funny, the most common reply I got to that was, defender? Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I think that... I don't know, I part of me thinks kind of... Uh, good riddance. That, yeah, I think he's gone, and I think he was never a good enough defender. Um, it, he's very strange. He's, he's like, it's almost like he has to be accommodated in the, in whatever team he plays in. So it's like he's a luxury defender, um, or he's a luxury defensive midfielder. You don't you don't normally get luxury players in those positions. They're usually the guys who go and win the game, like a number ten or a winger or someone. And you say, you know what? We can have him in the team because he'll win us the game. Whereas David Luiz, if you have him in the team in anything other than the kind of central in a, in a back three or a deep lying midfielder with people with lots of legs around him, he's an absolute liability. So uh, it, it really does kind of <laughs> just amaze me that that he still still managed to play uh, at the top level for so long as a defender. And look, I'm not saying in it by any stretch. You know, people are very cruel about him, and I'm not saying he's a bum. He's won. He's won the Premier League. He's won a couple of FA Cups. He's won the Champions League. He's won trophies in France and Portugal. He's got God knows how many caps for Brazil. So he's a talented footballer, but he's almost a footballer that doesn't have a position in in a kind of in the structure of. Of football as it's played, I th- I feel that's his biggest kind of issue, along with the you know the yeah concentration and I, I I can I can't work out whether it is concentration or whether it's kind of he's so relaxed, it's really hard to I, I don't know and he's so well respected by teammates and well liked, um but you know part of me thinks it's, it'll be good to see the back of him, another part of me kind of 
as Johnny says, he's a he's a big part of the soap opera of the Premier League, and it, we probably will end up missing him. Being part of the defenders' union, Gregor, um, <laughs> does does he give defenders a bad name? Does he give defenders a bad name? Is that a joke <laughs> question? <laughs> I thought I'd just I mean, throw it in there. Well, like, as I say, he can, he, if he's if he's someone who he, he's someone who has to be protected, that that's really like a, as I said, he's a luxury defender. So if he's playing in with two two defenders either side of him, and he doesn't really have to mark anyone, he just has to kind of read the game a little bit and mop up if he can, then he gets away with it. And this is not all the time, obviously, you know, this, but it's quite often. And it's the same, it was the same midfield. He would have to be the guy who can sit and spread spread the ball around while, while other people did his running. So, yeah, he's, he's, he's never been a defender, and that's why I got that reply on, on Twitter. <laughs> people were saying <laughs> he's certainly not a defender. So, yeah. After the game, Louise admitted that his expiring contract has been occupying his mind for the last few months, but didn't want to use it as an excuse for his performance. He's not signed an extension to his one-year deal at Arsenal, meaning he will be out of contract in just 12 days' time. So, Jonathan, if his mind isn't 100% focused on the job on the pitch, should he even be in the squad? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that, that, that's a question, I guess, for, for Mikel Arteta. And I, I suppose... Arsenal as a whole surprised me uh, in their lack of um, apparent mental focus and preparedness for the game. Because I know Arteta's been doing a lot of work in, in lockdown. He's done one-on-one sessions with players. He's, he, he's had lots of Zoom meetings. And I kind of thought, in terms of knowing where his players' minds were and, and, and them getting the mental side of the game right, I, I thought they'd be pretty good last night, and, and they weren't. And David Luiz, in that interview, did seem to be... It was a funny interview, again, um, contradictory David Lee's performance, because on the one hand, he seemed to be taking responsibility by saying it was my fault, not the team's. But then when pressed, he didn't really explain why, and I felt he almost threw it back onto the club or the coach. By, I think, I think what he was trying to say was my head wasn't in the game because of my contract, therefore I shouldn't have been playing, which isn't really the same as saying it's my fault. It's kind of saying it's the <laughs> club's fault. So it left mm. me a bit confused, but I suppose ultimately... Um, the, the blow of losing Socrates was a really for an injury just before the game. I think that was a very difficult one. Then, of course, Mari being um, taken off so early put put um, Arteta in a difficult position. And I think the only option he he might have had would have been to put Kalasinak on and and sort of rejig the defence. Um, I don't know. We could, could have possibly played Tierney in the middle where he's played a couple of times. Um, but he just doesn't have many options, which goes back to this lopsided Arsenal um, squad that we've, we've we've talked about for for so long. Um, but you know, it's David Luiz is capable of that performance when he's um, got no contract situation as well. So you know, I don't know. Does, does do you think Jonathan that Mikel Arteta should take some of the blame then for including him? Because surely he would have had some conversations, and, and David Luiz perhaps would have alluded to the fact that he's. He has some issues going on behind the scenes yeah. with his contract. Yeah, I suppose I suppose Arteta has to. I mean, it is partly his job to, to to gauge these things. I mean, there must have been positive noises coming out of Arsenal about David Luiz because Bakary Sanya was sort of saying a couple of days ago that he felt he's really improved under Arteta. He should get a new deal. So, from within the club, there's going to be a bit of David Luiz cheerleading and momentum. I don't know, but um, certainly that that's one of Arteta's responsibilities, I guess knowing if the player's ready and, and maybe looking at him on the bench and knowing if he's if he's ready to, to, to put him on as well. When it comes to contract issues, Gregor, 
did they weigh heavy on your mind when you're out playing on the pitch? I mean, this is the one one aspect I would have some sympathy with them about, and and all the players who are what are they out in contract in twelve or thirteen days or something. So that I mean, I, I don't think he probably would have wanted to be on the pitch. I think until that's sorted, uh, I think that would be playing on on your mind, but. I mean, there's only so far we can we can take the sympathy because this is nothing new from David Luiz. This is we've seen this countless times. Um, but I mean, there, there will be players there will be players uh, in the in the same boat, and I think they need to have their future sorted by the twenty third. So um, one way or another, we will know uh, what the future will be for for David Luiz and 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 a few others in the coming week. And this situation that that. Arsenal find themselves in at the moment this poor defence, another contract issue. Does it just simply sum the club up, Gregor? Yeah, I mean, they they play, they've, they've played some nicer nicer football at times under Arteta. They've looked better organised at times, but they've got the same kind of soft underbelly, uh, the same headless chickens in defence, the same dearth of leaders, and you know. Arteta has shown promise. I think we, we've we've got to give him that, but it's nothing more than that. And otherwise, very little has changed. This is this is this is who Arsenal are at the moment, um, and it's going to take a big overhaul for for that to change. Well, Louise was on the pitch due to two early injuries for Arsenal, who reportedly travelled to the game to Manchester by boarding a plane at London Stansted at five p.m. just over three hours before kickoff at the Etihad. Now, Gregor, are you surprised to hear that? And, and do you think that could affect? preparations as a player I was a little bit surprised but at the same time I mean it, it, this is a this is a, a very strange time we're living in and, and I don't know what the other options are I think clubs are, are, are trying their best to avoid going to hotels or avoid going to anywhere where uh, they, they have to go to a new place that's, that's you know they can't entirely know how uh, how safe it is for them and you know in the grand scheme of things and uh, I don't think you can really use it as an excuse. I think um, it'd be a very short flight. Uh, they'll still have had a chef making their cooking their dinner for them, their pre-match meal. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't think it's not like they were enduring a, a five or six-hour bus journey like like some clubs do in the lower leagues uh, and pitching up at the ground an hour before and having to do some stretches on the bus. So, um, yeah, I don't think it's an excuse they can really fall back on. Uh, mm. Really, David Louise was the was the man who, who brought them down. Yeah, perhaps it's no hardship really for them uh, when you put it like that. But there was no place for Meza Ozil in the matchday squad, a decision that Arteta said was tactical. Do you think that was a, a mistake, Jonathan? And and where do you see Ozil's uh, Arsenal career going if he's not involved in a game against one of the big teams in the league? I know, I mean, you know, this, and, and let's not forget, there's now an opportunity for clubs to name nine substitutes. So for Meza Ozil to not even be among nine substitutes in an Arsenal eleven in a big game um, says a lot about where he is in relation to the club. And Arteta was extremely um, terse afterwards when he was asked about it. I mean, he didn't offer an explanation. Um, you know, he's, there's, there's clearly something going on. And um, Ozil himself has been posting today pictures of, of you know, on social media, he's, he's kissing the Arsenal badge or he's holding it up or whatever and, um, you know, trying to emphasise the fans, his his loyalty. There's a, there's a kind of echo of the, the situation Paul Pogba was in with Mourinho maybe at United towards the end where, um, you know, 
I think social media gives players the opportunity to almost have their own followings um, and, and have their own say in, in, in sort of cryptic ways. And Pogba used that quite well, and, and I think Ozil uses it quite well, and he's still got a lot of Arsenal fans um, that, that, that are behind him and want to believe he's going to be this super player. But, you know, I, I, I think Arteta is clearly an intelligent manager when it comes to team culture, um, clearly learned the importance of everyone being committed um, to the cause through working with Guardiola and just through his own career and um, the, the fact that he couldn't include couldn't bring himself to even include Ozil does point to something um, about Ozil's state of mind um, and it's, it's Arsenal have to move on from it they have to get mm. to a point where they've moved on from, from this what that means for Ozil I don't know but they, this is, you know, if we're talking about soap opera this storyline in the soap opera has dragged on and on as well um, it was it was there under Unai Emery and it's and it's still there now and, and for that club to move forward they need to, to answer the, the Ozil question mm. Should we talk about Manchester City then of course the winners last night they opted against playing warm-up matches in preparation for the return of the Premier League and instead played 11 v 11 games from their squad at the Etihad uh, they looked rusty to begin with but soon hit their strides and then were just brilliant at times to watch are they the best equipped team in the league to play behind closed doors, do you think, Gregor? That was the kind of thought that was racing through my head when I was watching them play, yes. Uh, <laughs> because, I don't know, when you take all of it, when you sort of sap all the, the energy from the stands and the, and the kind of the surrounding noise and, and everything that is, that's been lost from having no crowds inside the, inside the stands... What you're left with is is the best, the best technically. So you know, what we spoke we spoke last week about Liverpool kind of often feeding on the noise of of, of Anfield and the atmosphere there. Yeah. I mean, obviously they're going to run away with the the title and it's too late. But I think City, they really they 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 have the most technically um, complete set of players, and. You know, I, I think they've got a real chance as well in the Champions League. I think you know, you know, you don't want to read too much into one game, but the, you know, Kevin, Kevin De Bruyne looked so powerful. Sterling looked looked right on top of his game. Mares, um, you know, they've got so many attacking options. Uh, Foden came on again. You know, the, Silva. <laughs> just, I think, I think uh, City are going to have a really good kind of period now, and that's going to take them up to the to the Champions League, and they'll be a tough tough proposition for anyone. Finally, on last night's action, let's hear from Henry Winter, who was at the Etihad, about the matchday experience without the fans. We arrived at the uh, ground and Manchester City staff and stewards were very professional, very polite, but it was it was a soulless experience with without fans. You went into a sort of one-way system, walking into the building, it was restricted where you could go to. There was hand sanitizer everywhere. Um, we were offered uh, face coverings and gloves for those who hadn't brought it. We had our temperature checked. Um, and then just little things like if you wanted to use the uh, the loo, there was one particular area that you could go into and uh, vast sections of the urinals were, were taped off to allow for social distancing. Press box, only 10 of us were allowed in. The Arsenal substitutes were, were sitting in front of us. God knows what it did to, for, for their legs that they needed to uh, to, to stretch out. But it was an empty feeling. When it was, at one point before the game, I just had a look down the, the concourse and the concourses there would normally be full of, of Manchester City fans um, getting ready, excited to see David Silva and, and Kevin De Bruyne. But it was empty. The concessions were, were shuttered up. And 
look, everyone understands why it had to be that way until the, the, the coronavirus is, is, is conquered. But I think what it's reminded the authorities and the broadcast and everyone really, as if we needed any reminding, that fans are absolutely vital because it was a surreal, soulless experience. So it was a soulless experience, as how Henry describes the game at the Etihad, without the fans, which is what we expected, I suppose. But once we've completed this season, which is a a needs-must situation, Jonathan, do we want to start the next one if fans aren't allowed back? Well, I I don't think we really wanted to restart this one without fans. Um, And -hmm. I just think we might be in in the situation um, where we we don't have an an option. It's clear football needs to be played because of financial reasons. Um, the government are starting to now make the first noises about fans being allowed in by September. Um, there are a couple of companies that are looking at ways to test people and get them in. So I do think that's an obvious step, but we might have to be prepared for a bit longer of this. And of course, the soullessness that Henry describes, we don't want to see that long term. Um, but we might, we might have no option. Well, of course, in order to, to fill the void left by the lack of fans, TV viewers were given the option of hearing fake crowd effects on the coverage last night. And Alison Rudd has been writing in The Times today about her enjoyment of the fake crowd. I have to say I was quite hesitant about it initially, but since hearing it more recently in the Bundesliga and, and of course, in, in the coverage on Wednesday, I kind of I enjoyed it. So did we opt for effects on or effects off, Gregor? I went for on. I flicked, I flicked over in the first half and, you know, because I remember there was a shot in quite early on and I think uh, Dean Henderson palmed it away um, and there was a kind of small delay and then obviously somebody, <laughs> the sound engineer, turned up the, the oohs. <laughs> kind of, it didn't fit, you know. There, was, there, was, there were moments like that that were kind of, you could tell it was artificial, but just having the sort of ambient noise throughout the kind of the majority of the game was definitely uh, better than than hearing the empty kind of echoes of of the shouts and stuff if you if you switched over to the to having it without that noise on so i i went for it and you know I, as i said before it was i was cynical about that in the past but i think if it helps you just kind of focus on the on the on the football and yeah. forget forget the situation that we're living through at the moment <laughs> just for a little while then that's a good thing for me yeah, and I think you're right. I think that's what it helps. It helps you to focus on the games. It's easy, I found before with the Bundesliga, that I could easily just trail off and get distracted by other things because it didn't feel like a real game. What about you, Jonathan? What did you opt for? Um, I went. For, I tried both, um, and I went for sound in the end, and, and I ended up being a little bit disappointed with myself because I'd love to <laughs> have been an intellectual kind of esthete who just loves football so much that I could just focus on the... The fine details without worrying about there being noise, but I have to admit, um, it was it was just I don't know, just felt a little bit more normal, a little bit better with the the crowd noise. Maybe it was just that thing that it was it, it meant that you actually you did concentrate on the game more because you weren't thinking about the the quietness or the emptiness. Um, I, do, I agree with Gregor that's, that they do they need a little bit of work in terms of um, timing some of those noises to correspond with with bits of play, but there was a bit of bit of fun in that as well. They had the, that Villa, 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 didn't they? I'm sure I heard that at some point. I quite enjoyed that. Um, so, so Gregor, we're enjoying the experience then of the, the fake crowd noise. But do you think that the players would enjoy it then? Should it be pumped into the stadium? Uh, I think that's an interesting question. I, actually, 
QPR when at my visit today, they they will be. They've uh, really? Lee Hughes was saying that he was you know he was a cynic as well, and then they found uh, they found a company that that have done it, and he says it's it's brilliant. And they were they were testing it when I was there, and it was you know it's not it wasn't overwhelming, it wasn't very loud, but it was just something there in the background, and it'll be interesting to see how the players react to that. I don't think we can really know, and I, I I'm not sure. I think I think having something there might be. Might make it feel like it's it's a little bit more real, but you know, a bit, a bit less like a reserve game. Just sort of, I, I don't know. I honestly wouldn't know without being able without playing because these these aren't reserve games. These are these are, these are games that have a lot riding on them, uh, and I don't know whether you'd feel it was artificial or whether you would feel that it kind of makes it feel a little bit more like like it should be. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, before we finish, we have to mention a certain Marcus Rashford. It's been quite the week for the Manchester United and England star, and he hasn't even played a game yet. During lockdown, the 22-year-old has started a charity that has raised millions to feed 400,000 children, partnered on a drive to counter homelessness, and has now convinced the government to make a U-turn on free school meals to help stop 1.3 million children going hungry this summer it's been fantastic work by by Rashford and the, and the team behind him as well how inspiring has Rashford's actions been Gregor I mean it's been remarkable uh it's very hard to to think of a of a footballer who's, who's sort of enacted such tangible change um for for a very long time and it's the it's the fact that it's something that's very personal to him as well you know, he he yes. was in the in the shoes of the 1.3 million children, children reliant on school meals. Um, That's a reality he's lived through, and mm-hmm. obviously, he's spoken about the the very many people who who he th- who who have helped him uh, helped him as he grew up. You know, whether that was coaches or teachers or um, you know his parents, his mum, and the hard work she she. She worked very hard to provide for him, provide what she could for him. So it's it was it's, it's the fact that it's very personal for him that that makes it all the more inspiring, I think. And and it's just the kind of latest example of the 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 power that that players wield now. Um, I think they're almost their own kind of little commercial entities, and 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 when they raise a, raise their voice about something, then then it's it's heard. But you know, Johnny spoke about. Mesut Ozil there, and and the the fact that he can always kind of counter counter uh, what Arteta's been saying with a little post on social media. So that's the other side to it. But on, from this point of view, if they want to do something really positive with their voice, then they have the power to now. And and there's more and more footballers standing up and doing that. 
Hmm. I don't know what you were doing at 22, Jonathan, but I certainly wasn't in a position to be thinking about helping others as Rashford is, is doing. Do you think he deserves more recognition for what he's done? Absolutely. I think he's um, he's done something. I mean, how many, time, how many times can someone in a lifetime, uh, you know, any of us do something that's going to help literally millions of people? I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible and to do that at age 22. Even if he hadn't been a brilliant footballer, um, you know, that would be um, a crowning achievement for him. I think Gregor's right. I think it's just an example of, 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 of how players are using their, their reach. I think I spoke earlier about how um, it's more than just symbols now. I think there's a, there's a new sort of wave of, of player activism where they're actually doing as well. You know, they're doing things that count. Uh, and it's got so much, so much admiration for them. Rashford's efforts in lockdown have been alongside Raheem Sterling and Jaden Sancho making a stand in support of the Black Lives Matter movement and their England captain Harry Kane of course has sponsored Leighton Orange shirts to help a charity and the NHS and then of course there's the collective of Premier League footballers coming together for the Players Together initiative. You've spoken there Jonathan about the new wave. Gregor do you think this is a new generation of footballers and England footballers in in particular in this situation uh, which is a sign of things to come? I do, yeah. I think you know, uh, Johnny pointed to the to the interview I did with Wes Morgan this week, and you know, Wes and Troy Deeney drove the 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 Black Lives Matter uh, support that, that the players are, have shown this uh, this week. They drove that. Uh, you know, it was an idea that they came up with and pushed the pushed towards the Premier League, and they got the support for it. So it was an idea to a conception within within a week. Which is is pretty remarkable, and again, what, what Sterling and Rashford are doing in, in raising the voices about things that are very personal, and important to them. Um, I, I think we will see more and more of that. The one I have one caveat. I think you know, we all inhabit and are really absorbed by this world, by the world of football, and I'm sure listeners to this podcast are too. But you know, I think when we've seen in, uh, Johnny pointed to this that in the last couple of days, Matt, Hon- Matt Hancock. The, the health secretary oh. called Marcus Rashford, Daniel Rashford. Boris Johnson, the prime minister, said, you know, that he hadn't really heard anything about Rashford's campaigning until the same day he did the U-turn. Uh, Dominic Rabb, foreign secretary, has just said recently that, you know, taking the knee feels like a, a symbol of subordination and subjugation, and and sort of compared to something of Game of the, Game of Thrones. So mm. there are vast swathes of the population. And it's a very polarised population uh, just now who are either unaware of footballers' activism or strongly opposed to it. So I think we have to remember that. You know, there's a lot of people who think that these guys shouldn't be doing what they're doing, which I, I can't fathom personally. But I think yeah. we should remember that it's not necessarily the... You know, Marcus Rashford has a huge impact here, but there's a lot of people who think that the Black Lives Matters movement in particular is something that shouldn't be associated with football. They think it's political and you know again I disagree with that but there are a lot of people who think that way so we have got to remember that it's possibly not having the quite the impact on the whole of the population that we think. It's interesting you've said that actually because I, I did see on Twitter some of the reaction and of course there was some positive reaction but there was also as you've just pointed out some negativity towards it people saying I'm done with football for example and you're absolutely right there is a polarization of of, uh, of people that we're living in right now but do you think Jonathan that footballers should become active activists in society yes I mean 
I think we need to draw a distinction. And, and Richard Masters, I was in on the, the Premier League media call this week when Richard Masters gave us all the briefing. And he was being asked about this idea of players um, promoting political messages and where that might lead. Now, something like Black Lives Matter, Richard Masters said this, but I completely agree with it. It, it. This is not a political message. Not for me anyway. This is, this is a, a human race message. And it's entirely right that if, if footballers, um, like any other members of society, see what they consider to be uh, an affront to the human race and injustice, that, that they are able to use what they've got, what their tools are, to, 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 to make a, a point about it. And I think there's an irony that at the start of lockdown, you know, players were essentially being told to stay in your box um, you know, take your take your pay cuts and get on. Uh, you know, be ready to play and entertain the nation again. You know that that that, that phrase was was used. You know, your job's to to know your place and and entertain us. And um, I think you know the way football's behaved in lockdown, footballers has actually just completely shifted the paradigm that they've led the way in 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 many things. Um, they've taken more responsibility than you could expect any group of young men in their twenties to, to or, or, or younger or slightly older to, to take. And um, rather than staying in their boxes, they've they've shown that they're willing to to, to you know push beyond their sport and, and try and make an impact. And I think it's right that they do so. Certainly, you know, you have to look at it on particular causes. But if we're talking about Black Lives Matter, we're talking about supporting the NHS, and we're talking about trying to feed vulnerable um, children uh, or children living in poverty, then, you know, these are human things. These, 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 these are things to be applauded. I know that not, ev- I know that not everybody wants it, and maybe this is going to be a divide between fans and yet another divide in our society. But for me personally, um, it's filled me with, with enormous admiration the last two or three weeks, what we've seen players do. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Well, that is it for now. Many thanks to Gregor and to Jonathan as well. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It's just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information. And we will be back with you on Monday for the very latest game podcast, looking back at a busy weekend of Premier League action. Listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. 